You are listening to Shining Star Community Church, English Ministries Sunday Message. Please visit us at www.shiningstar.life. So the question I'm often asked is, what is repentance? And how do you know if you've truly repented? Have you guys ever thought about that? It's like, I repented, it's like, but man, I'm still in sin. Did I really repent? Right? Now, those are good questions. And in fact, those are questions that even I struggle too. So how and when do we know if our repentance was real? How do we know if it was genuine, authentic, whatever you want to call it? Today, we're going to hear something where I hope you'll be able to visualize what repentance looks like. So as you listen to the words, I want you to imagine, okay? Use your imagination. Imagine the people. Imagine the scene. Imagine it all because sometimes a picture is worth a thousand words, okay? Um, Now, there's three big truths I want to lay out for you all today. One is this, repentance. The second one is reconciliation, and the third one is obedience. So repentance, reconciliation, and obedience. I want to talk about the first one. The first point is repentance is more than saying sorry. Okay, it's more than saying sorry. Turn to your neighbor and say, sorry, I'm not sorry. <laughs> Isn't that the truth, though? Right? Now, have you guys heard of the term cheap grace? Now, the thing about cheap grace is this. It's, it's a notion that's going around in a lot of churches, especially in the, in the Western cultures these days. Where, And this is how you know. Um, if the church or whatever, the Christian or the person who goes to church really kind of believes and espouses to this whole understanding of cheap grace, cheap grace if they live by it, and that is this. Whenever you hear sermons or you go to life groups or small group, cell groups, whatever you want to call it, Bible studies, when whatever is being taught or preached or shared at church has a lot of different things, a lot of different topics, a lot of different ideas, but not one time does it ever speak on repentance. That's cheap grace. One commentator said this, you know, we're all really good, at, good about adding Jesus into our lives without taking any sin out. We love just adding Jesus, more of Jesus, more of Jesus. I want more of Jesus. But we're not so good about taking sin out. We're not so good about addressing sin. We're not so good about repenting of sin. That's an issue that we all have. You know, there's a church, and I'm not going to name it because I've alluded it numerous times, and it's not just one particular church. Quite frankly, we're all susceptible, even this church too. But, and I, let me tell you, I, I'm not... I'm not into the business of bashing pastors and bashing churches who are struggling. Of course not. Why would I be? We're all, we all struggle. Our job as a local church is to build up the local church, to help those who are struggling and everything like that. But I am obligated to call out false teachers. I am obligated to call out false pastors that preach false gospels, right? And that's, and that's a question that we need to ask ourselves too. How do we gauge if... if uh, if a pastor is truly being what a pastor ought to be, you can look at 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1 to 4, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, or Titus chapter 1, verse 9. And this is what the role of the pastor is. The pastor is supposed to share in the suffering of Christ, just as Apostle Paul did. Suffer, share in the suffering of Christ. Pastors are to shepherd their flocks towards spiritual maturity. 
They are to resist heresy, be on guard for false teachers, and warn those who are straying from the path due to the consequences of their behavior, due to the consequences of their faltering faith. Our job is to say, wake up. Wake up. What is God's truth saying to you today? Wake up. Stop going in that direction. Stop moving away from God. Stop straying away from the path. Stop falling by the wayside. Time to walk the straight and narrow path. Which means my job is to say that it's not okay to sin. It's not okay to sin. That sin cannot remain in our lives. That sin is bad. Turn to your neighbor and say this amazing truth that a lot of people today don't want to believe. Turn to your neighbor and say, sin is bad. Sin is bad. It's destructive. And that we're all sinful. Which is why we need to cling on to the cross of Christ even more. We need Jesus even more, don't we? Amen? Because it's only at the feet of Jesus where you and I receive the grace to overcome that sin and the grace to receive freedom from that sin. But too many espouse to the cheap grace idea where they don't want people to feel bad. I've heard this from, from so many pastors, from so many Christians too. We don't mention sin. We don't mention things that will disrupt our good mood, our good vibe. We don't want to talk about their sins. We're fearful that people are going to what? Leave the church. That people are going to leave the church. In fact, I've had on more than one occasion newcomers who have come to our church, sat through the service, and afterwards when I greet them, they said, you know what, Pastor David, or David, whichever is fine, they said, you know what, that was a bit too intense. That was too intense. And I said, and you probably heard me say this to you too, I said, well, you know, how about this? How about you and I, uh, and you and your wife, or you and your children, come by our home. Grace makes a mean casserole, a mean meatloaf. We'll eat some food. We'll talk about who we are. I'll introduce who I am, what our church believes, and all that stuff, and all that good stuff. And they'll smile and nod, and they'll never come back. And then, of course, I'll, res- I'll email them, right? I'll email them. I'll hound them down, and they won't respond. And the some and a few people who have responded simply said this, your church is too intense. It doesn't mesh with me. And fine, if it doesn't mesh because they don't like our style of worship or style of this, that's fine. But when they say, it's, I don't agree with your theology, That's, do, you know what to, do you know what that means to me? That means that they don't want to hear their problems. They want to hear how great things are in life. They want to hear how great they're doing, how good life is, and how much God wants to love on them and dote on them and bless them with riches, and that life is good, and if you pray, you can pray it all away, and all this richness and prosperity and all this health and wealth, all that junk is going to come to you if you are just, you know, if, you, if you're good enough, if you do enough. So this idea of discomfort or being uncomfortable is such a foreign concept And I want to tell you guys right now, I don't think God wants you to leave this service this afternoon comfortable. You get that? He does not want you to leave those double doors and say, I'm okay. Life is fine. It's perfect. I want you, I believe the Lord is asking you, when you leave these double doors that you say, life is hard, but God, you've got me. 
I'm going through a hard time because of the sins in my life, because of the problems that I have. But God, your grace has me. I want more of you and less of the world. I want more of you and less of me. That's what we should be saying. Not just going out saying, life is fine, it's good, no problem. The Christian life is uncomfortable. Turn to your neighbor and say, ooh, it's uncomfortable. It is. Someone said when you read the Bible and it makes you feel uncomfortable, when it offends you, when it hurts you, then you've read it the right way. Then you've read it the right way. That's not to say that God isn't comforting and that his words aren't loving, but we have to understand that there is something going on within you. There is a war that is fighting for your affections, that is fighting for your soul, that is fighting for your life. We have to understand that there is something going on between the spirit and the flesh, something between sin and holiness, something between the devil and God. There's nothing fun and gentle and comfortable and easy about the Christian life. There isn't. That's why if you don't pray, you're powerless. If you don't read the Bible, you're weaponless. If you isolate yourself and say, I don't need the church, I don't need the community, I don't need life group, I don't need the body, then guess what? You're vulnerable. You are vulnerable. You know, the 20-some hours it takes me to prepare for these Sunday sermons I got to say, it's kind of like a double-edged sword. One is that it's amazing. such a productive, fruitful, convicting time, and I feel a lot of blessings, a lot of joy in the midst of my preparation, but at the same time, it is the most uncomfortable 20 hours of the week. 20 hours of the week, it is. Because half the time, as I'm writing, as I'm thinking, as I'm researching, all that stuff, it makes me stop. I'm forced to stop and recognize my sins against God. I'm constantly feeling the needle, okay, the needle hypocrisy and self-righteousness start spiking up, but instead of just suppressing it, it's like, no, 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 this, is, this message is for them, not for me. Instead of that, I'm forced to stop and repent because I realize every line of the verse, every verse by verse of the passage, everything that I'm typing up, I'm thinking, man, God, who am I to be preaching this? Who am I to be saying this to these people? Change me first. Fix me first. We need to stop with this shallow repentance. And once that stops, you can bet that the shallowness of your Christian life will also begin to cease. So it's more than saying sorry. And let's be real. When we say sorry to people, we say it quite flippantly. Because in our heart of hearts, we don't really mean it. Well, sometimes that's how we approach God, too, with our shallow sorries. But true repentance is more than saying sorry. So I'm going to get into the story here. Jacob had already planned to meet up with his angry brother Esau. You all probably remember the story from last week when he sent one band of servants after another to meet Esau. And each servant delivered and gifted a flock, then delivered and gifted a herd. And everything just kept on going. And Jacob was essentially scrambling to do anything he could to pacify the anger of his brother Esau. And through that all, Jacob himself, he wasn't ready to meet Esau. He was giving gifts, he was doing all he could, but he wasn't ready. Remember how God had to break Jacob down? God had to defeat Jacob and bring an end of himself. Jacob had to realize, you know what? Esau's not the problem. Daddy Isaac isn't the problem. Uncle Laban's not the problem. God, you are not the problem. In fact, I am the problem. 
It had to come to that point. Jacob had to be defeated in order to be delivered by God. He had to come down to a point of nothingness, of complete humility, of complete submission for God to say, now I can start working in you. So Jacob, he wrestled with God all night, and finally after all that, Jacob was ready to meet with Esau. Why? Because Jacob, at this point, after wrestling with God, after the whole hip situation, he no longer trusted in himself. He no longer trusted in his cunning ability to scheme and manipulate and maneuver out of his problems because Jacob, for the first time in his life, has come to a point where he can trust in God that God would fight for him. That's why he changed his name to Israel. For once, for the first time, Jacob was finally thinking like a man of faith. And where do we see that faith? It begins in verse 3 when Jacob, no longer cowering away, he steps up and he walks out in front of his whole family, in front of the whole crowd, in front of everyone, and there he meets Esau. Remember, he's got a new name now, right? No longer deceptive or deceiving Jacob. No longer the manipulator Jacob. No, now he goes as God will fight for me, Israel. So right then and there, you see his newfound faith. But what we need to understand is that on the other side of that newfound faith, on the other side of that coin, is repentance. It's not just faith. Because on the other side is repentance. Repentance isn't some work that you have to do to add to our faith. Now, you've heard me preach about repentance a lot. And and you've heard me say, you got to repent, you got to repent. So you're thinking, okay, I'm going to repent during my breakfast, during my lunch, and during my dinner. And whenever we try to start kind of adding that up, we start thinking it'll add to our faith. No. It's not something you build up and you get these spiritual reward points for your righteousness and all that stuff and you marry yourselves before God. Repentance is this. It's a changing of our mind because of the faith you have. Repentance is a changing of your mind because of the faith you have. And the change of mind because of our faith, it produces a change in behavior. It it turns into a, a change in lifestyle. It produces a change in everything in your life. Louis Burkhoff said this, True repentance is always in conjunction with faith. Wherever there is true faith, then there will also be true repentance. They are two, but different aspects of turning. Repentance is a turn away from sin, and faith is turning towards God. Repentance is turning away from sin, and faith is turning towards God. The two cannot be separated. They are complementary. So, where do we see that repentance in Jacob? Remember how I said before to use your visualization skills here? Because more than being described, sometimes all you need to do is just see, and you'll know what repentance is. So from verses 1 to 11, we see Jacob's act of repentance toward Esau. In verse 3, what do we get? He bows down before Esau. Jacob bows down before Esau. Turn to your neighbor and give them a bow. Was that awkward? Was that difficult? You're like, I'll never bow to you. (laughs) Meaning this, Jacob touched his nose 
and his forehead to the ground in a prostrate position as a gesture of complete submission. He's saying this, you are better than me. He is saying you are superior than me. I'll tell you what, as an American, but with a Korean heritage, I do my fair share of bowing. In fact, I went out before service or a little bit during the praise to get some water, even getting the water from the office to come here, I bowed to five people. This morning, I bowed to maybe 50 people. And I kind of like it when there's like a clump of people because I just do one bow and I kind of hit them all. You know what I mean? Right? Because I don't think, if the individuals would come, I'm like, ah. Right? But if there's a whole clump, I go, yes. And I hit like all 20 of them. But you know what's hard? It's not just so much the bowing, but it's who you bow to. Especially when there are people who rub you the wrong way. Maybe it was a deacon or deaconess who had bad-mouthed you. Maybe it was a member who always questioned your ministry philosophy. Whatever the case may be, it's really hard to bow to them. And I'll be honest, sometimes, sometimes there are members on the Korean side and maybe we don't see eye to eye on certain things. And so when they come, they expect me to bow because I'm younger. I'll kind of make eye contact with them. And then I may, I may not bow, but I'll kind of give them a little half smile, a passive smile, right? Because I don't want to be too rude. I, am, I have to be somewhat pastorly, right? I'm like, just really awkward. <laughs> it's really awkward, so I'm, I'm sure I'm just like scaring them. Uh, <clears throat> but then I'll just kind of walk away and but let me tell you, it's bowing to someone that you have a hard time respecting. Bowing to someone that you don't like. That's really stretching it, I think. <clears throat> Jacob, he bows. But he doesn't just bow. He doesn't go, fine, here's my obligatory bow because I don't want to die. He bows, burying his face into the dirt. And it wasn't even once. He bowed seven times. Seven times. This was Jacob really saying, you know what? I am nothing. He is conveying to Esau and before everyone else that of his humble submission before Esau, my brother, the superior. It's like when a subject is being approached by a king. That's how Jacob was treating Esau. He's saying, you are king. I am servant. You are Lord. I am slave. You are high. I am low. I am nothing. And when Jacob speaks, he calls himself Esau's servant. And he calls Esau his Lord. What was that entire exchange all about? You see, at that moment, at that moment when Jacob was doing it, when he was bowing, when he was saying, you are my Lord and I am your servant, right then and there, Jacob was giving back the blessing that he had stolen. He was giving back the blessing that he had stolen from his brother. Here, bowing and putting himself in the servant role according to the cultural rules of that day, Jacob was reversing the blessing he deceived his father to get. Remember when Isaac blessed him? He said, many nations serve you and people bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers. May the sons of your mother bow down to you. Jacob had received those amazing words of blessing through what? Through deceit, through manipulation, through lies. And so now Jacob is convicted to give that blessing back. 
In fact, in verse 11, Jacob uses the word for present or gift in Hebrew. In that ESV translation that you have right now, it says blessing. Jacob is giving that blessing back. Now you might say, but God, he didn't promise to bless Jacob. But but didn't God promise to bless Jacob with that blessing? Yes. And God would have certainly given it to him, which is why it wasn't Jacob's to steal. God was trying to bless Jacob. Why was Jacob doing what he did? God would have blessed Jacob when he wanted, how he wanted, where he wanted. And so Jacob, he repents by reversing the blessing. Because Jacob realizes that God, he can be trusted. That God, he is faithful. That God, he will do what he promised. And that's what repentance is. It's a recognition that you've tried doing things your way. But all it's done was lead you into sin, trusting in your ways. All it's done is lead you further away from God. But it's also recognizing that God's ways are better. That's what repentance is too. It's when we say, God, bring me back to you. I've been walking away. I've been trying to do things my way. And it hasn't been working out because now I know it will never work out. God, bring me back to you. I need your wisdom. I need your truth. I need your guidance right now. Repentance is more than just saying sorry. It's a change of mind where you recognize your pride. You recognize your manipulation, your treachery. When you recognize your impulsiveness and your foolishness. And where you recognize at the same time that God, you are right all along that you will continue to be right, and you will always be right. So this afternoon, God, he calls us to what? To repent. Every single one of us, including me. It's not just when the bad feelings come and we're caught in our sins that we have to repent. No, we must repent because repentance is a step in faith. Those who have faith repent because it brings about a reversal of the direction that you might have been walking on that was leading you towards anywhere but God. When you repent, it completely changes your trajectory. It changes your fellowship with God. It changes how you worship with God. It ultimately changes everything we need to change about who we are and all the bad things that we have done. You know, repentance is a very active word. Whenever we sin, we always think about this. I've heard people say, we need to cast out our sin. We need to cast out our sin in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus, right? You got the sin problem? Cast out in the name of Jesus. It's funny because that's not found in the Bible. Or casting out the influence of Satan or casting out sins. But what we are told to do is to turn around and walk the opposite direction. What we are told to do is not just rebuke the devil. It's not just rebuke his temptations. We're actually called, according to James chapter 4, 7, to resist it. To resist temptation. If you have Christ, or rather if Christ has you, that means you've been given the gift of repentance and faith. That is yours, that God has given you. And these are all gifts of God's grace to you, so any addiction, any sin, any issue they might have, in the name of Christ, yes, But the power that he has given you, you can overcome it. You can overcome it. Amen? My second point is this. God, he reconciles us. 
Now, the reason many people don't want to talk about repentance is that they don't want to make it seem like we're somehow earning God's favor. After all, God's favor is by pure grace. By his pure grace, he reconciles us to him, and we see that beautifully displayed here in verse 3 to 4. So what happens after display of repentance by Jacob? Hostility is removed. When Jacob repents, a sense of brotherhood is restored. There's love, joy, is filled. In fact, Jesus uses these same exact words when he talks about the prodigal son being reconciled back to the father. So what, about, what brought about this reconciliation? Was it Jacob's doing? Was it his scheming? No. Was it about Esau suddenly growing soft and saying, you know what, I want family. I want to love my brother again. Was it him pursuing godliness all of a sudden during those years of separation? No. In fact, Esau was still very much against God. What brings change? What brings reconciliation between two people? Turn to your neighbor and say, What? The answer is God. God, and it will always be God. Now, <clears throat> right now, there are people in your life who have been broken off from you, whether by your doing or their own decision. Maybe it was a parent, maybe it was a child, spouse, sibling, church member, close friend, whoever it might be. Your relationship with them seems irreparable. Maybe you've tried reaching out to them. Maybe you've given them gifts of camels and female donkeys and goats, right, as Jacob did for Esau. Maybe you did all that. Nothing worked. Maybe you tried showing them kindness. You tried killing them with kindness, showering them with kindness. Maybe you showered them with gifts. Maybe you thought enough time has passed where we should be okay now. Enough time has passed where we should be on the same page, but again, to no avail. And so you're frustrated. Maybe you're bitter. Maybe that anger is starting to reemerge in your life, saying, how dare they? Who do they think they are? Folks, you can't bring reconciliation. Only God can. Sure, you might be able to have a conversation with them that might sound productive, heading into the right direction, but the root issue of why the brokenness and the separation occurred will always be there until God surgically removes it from them and from your heart, no matter what your best intentions might have been. God has to do it. You see, here in this story, God was sovereignly changing Esau's heart to make him receptive. All the while, God was wrestling Jacob to the ground to make him broken, to make him nothing nor to make him a man of faith. And we all keep thinking, if we follow Oprah's 10-step book to peacemaking and follow it up with a batch of cookies, then we should all be okay. They should love me after that. But that's just the surface. All those self-help books can never and will never dig into the root issue. So let's look at how God reconciles us. In verse 10, it's clear that what's being said here is bigger than just two brothers making up. This is how Jacob addressed Esau in verse 10. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. So get this. God was Jacob's adversary because of Jacob's sin. Esau was Jacob's adversary because of Jacob's sin. Jacob, he encounters God, and somehow miraculously survives. Have you ever wrestled God? He survived. 
Jacob encounters Esau, who, if you recall, said, hey, I'm going to kill you after dad dies. And Jacob survives. How? By God's grace. As far as Jacob was concerned, looking in Esau's face was like looking into the face of God. Because in both cases, all Jacob could see was grace where vengeance should have been. All Jacob could see when he saw the face was mercy where wrath should have been. Just imagine this for a moment here. Jacob was so distraught with guilt and despair, he thought his time was up. He thought, and he knew he deserved judgment. He deserved death. He knew what was coming for him when all of a sudden, as he looks into the face of his judge, there instead of a judge, he sees the face of his Savior. Instead of seeing these angry eyes of retribution, when he looks upon the face of Esau, he sees the face of God, and he sees the eyes of tender love and mercy. He sees God. You see what Jacob experienced through the brokenness of his relationship with his brother? Jesus Christ, he accomplishes it in reality. Because here we see the heart of God's good news in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It says this, All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made us to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin. And here's the truth. I wish I could stop right there. Because we could say, thank you, Jesus, and then just kind of leave it right there. But there's something here in our passage that, have, that has to be addressed. And unfortunately, it's not good news. And that's what my third point is. If God is God, then we have to obey him fully. If God is God, then we have to obey him fully. Okay, so... Uh, Grace and I, my kids, were invited by John and Sue last week to their home. Beautiful, beautiful home. And I saw all the stuff that John did around the house. It was gorgeous. Renovate the kitchen, renovate everything, all that stuff. And then it made me feel really inadequate. Thank you, John. <coughs> and um, I'm not a handyman. So if you guys ever want to fix something, don't call me. And I'm not really particularly diligent about fixing things, especially after, after having started it. Needless to say, there's a lot of unfinished things around our house. Sorry, wife. Right here in this passage, we have an example of unfinished business. An example of unfinished obedience, or rather incomplete obedience. And sadly, I think a lot of us can relate to this. So it's not that obvious, but in this chapter, we're given an example of Jacob's partial obedience. Do you remember when, ja remember when God appeared to Jacob at Bethel? And there Jacob had the vision of the stairway to heaven. Do you remember that passage? And before he left, he made a promise to God in chapter 28. He says, God, if you'll be my God, and you'll provide for me, you'll feed me, you'll clothe me, and you'll allow me to return safely to my father's house, and Lord, you will be my God, and the stone that I have set up will be a pillar and will be God's house, and I will give you a tenth of everything. So 10 years later, or a few years later, when Jacob was in Uncle Laban's area, home territory, the Lord, he appeared to Jacob again saying, look, I am the God of Bethel. Remember that part where you anointed the pillar and where you made a vow to me? 
Now leave this land and go back to your native land. So it seems right now that God is telling Jacob to return back to Bethel and to fulfill his vow that he had made. So Jacob goes back to the land. In verse 20, he sets up an altar and he called upon the name of the Lord, calling it Eloi, Israel or God, the God of Israel. So it sounds good, right? Like what's the problem? Sounds like what he did was what he promised to do, which is he returned and he made the Lord to be his God. But there's one problem. Jacob, he settled down in an area short of Bethel. He stopped temporarily in Sukkoth. Then he settled down in Shechem in Canaan. It was about a day's journey from Bethel. Now why Shechem of all places? Why did he stop by Shechem before he approached Bethel? Because Shechem was actually quite a nice place. It was really populated, really busy, a lot of crossroads in the area. He saw a lot of business opportunities that would be advantageous for him and his family and his growing herd and flock to just kind of stay there. And so he built himself a home. He bought a piece of property, and he stayed there for weeks? No. Just for a few months? No. He lived there for at least 10 years. So what's the big deal? He was back in the land after all. Here's the thing. We'll see next week and in the next chapter. But the cost of doing that was terrible. As a result, there was rape, massacre, a series of wickedness that occurred all because of some warped partnership that he had with the Canaanite community. And none of that would have happened had Jacob gone to Bethel where God told him to go. So Jacob's trouble upon himself and upon his family was all due to his partial or incomplete obedience. One pastor said this, it's a lot easier to just obey God no matter what he tells us to do than to live with the consequences of disobedience. Just obey God. It may seem hard right now, but it is far better and far easier than facing the consequences of disobedience. Now, did Jacob, did he grow a lot throughout his journey of when we started way back earlier in Genesis? Yeah, of course. Did he learn and did he experience a lot to mature himself? Yes. But Jacob was still learning too. He was still growing and he ignored a very important truth that he should never have abandoned. And that truth is this. If God is your God, you have to obey him. If his words are his words... You have to trust him. If what God says in the scripture is real, and it is, then we have to follow him. No ifs, ands, or buts. Look, God is asking all of you to do something. It's confirmed in scripture. It's a truth that's been tugging at your heart for quite some time. And maybe you took the first step. Maybe you made a profession that you would do it. Maybe you talked to talk. But unless you go through with it, unless you complete it, unless you walk the walk, you are guilty. We are all guilty of partial obedience. Friends, what is God saying to us through his word today? And here's a recap. First, we have to repent. And it's more than just saying, God, I'm sorry for what I did. It's a change of mind that leads to a change of behavior. It's joined to the beautiful reality that you have faith, faith to overcome, faith that Christ says will allow you to overcome these addictions, these sins, these temptations. 
and the ability to turn around from your wickedness and turn back to him. Secondly, we are to understand that it's only God who can bring about true reconciliation. He is the only one who can bring about real healing and remove our guilt and shame. He is the only one who can bring peace and cleanse us from the root of our sin issues. So if we need to reconcile with people in your life, which I'm sure there are, what do you have to do? Just go and give them some tea and sympathy? Uh-uh. You got to earnestly pray and say, God, do in us what you did with Jacob and Esau. Work in their hearts, but Lord, work in my heart first. Fix the root issue of their problems, of their bitterness and anger, but God, give me that peace as well. Fix the bitterness in my life. And lastly, there are consequences to incomplete obedience. In fact, just using that term as a contradiction, how, how can obeying be incomplete? And yet we learn today, and we will learn again next week, that there are dire consequences in our failure to fully obey God. So what is God's lesson for his children today? We must repent, we must seek reconciliation, and we must obey. Here's the thing, and I end with this. You don't have to be a theologian. You don't have to be a veteran Christian or a seminary graduate to learn and to love and to live out these truths. God is calling you all today to do this. Amen? Repent, reconcile, and obey. Let's pray. Before we go into our time of communion, I want to give you guys an opportunity to reflect and meditate on what you've just heard. Now, I'm sure immediately after you've heard me talk about people that we need to reconcile with and that a face or a name just immediately popped into mind. Pray for that person, but pray for your relationship with them as well. But I would say, even before you pray for them, pray for your relationship with the Lord. You see, it's not just about the sins and our... the, the um, the sins that we've committed against one another, it's the transgressions that we've made before God, against God. We need to get ourselves right before Him. And maybe some of you guys are thinking, man, I'm really dealing with the sin issue in my life, and you're hoping, you're praying, God, can you just suddenly, miraculously um, take it away from my life? Like, take away this temptation away from my life. Take away this distraction away from my life. Take away this addiction immediately away from my life. And, I, and, I, and I'll be honest with you, sadly, it's not going to always happen that way. But God has given us something else. You see, apart with, along with his divine sovereign grace that he has empowered you, he has also given you this divine human responsibility too. And it has this amazing relationship where in Christ you have the power to turn away from that sin. I know it's such, it's such a staggering and interesting concept, but if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. You are not bound by the laws of sin. The chains that have once bound you have been broken. Death and shame and guilt that has once loomed over your head all throughout your life no longer looms over you. You see, you are free. And yet, as the forgiven, we live as if we're not forgiven. The ones who are saved, we live as if we still got to somehow do something. And Christ is saying, I have overcome. And so you have overcome. What do you need to repent of? 
whatever it is, it starts with your mind. Where you say, God, forgive me for going my way. I want to go your way now. Not only is your way better, not only is your way best, but it is right. So let's pray. Let's pray. Let's repent. Let's seek after reconciliation. And maybe God is also asking you to do something actively in your spiritual life. Maybe God's calling you to do something as you've been going through devotions and the Lord is saying, reach out to this person. Serve here. Do this. Love more. Do whatever it is. Pursue after spiritual disciplines. And right now we're thinking, I don't have the time. I don't have the willpower. I don't want to. I'm uncomfortable for, about evangelizing people. And God is saying, enough with your partial obedience. You can go ahead and talk to talk all you want, but until you walk the walk, you see there will be consequences to your disobedience. Let's take some time to pray over that right now. Let's pray.